This is a Handshake Agency podcast. Welcome back to the Rewind podcast. I'm your host, Steve Bell. Our mandate with Rewind is to travel back through the past, looking at memorable moments in Australian music history with a focus on classic albums, and Australian albums don't come much more classic than Born Sandy Devotional, the 1986 second album by beloved Western Australian outfit The Triffords. It's the story of a band of friends who found themselves a long, long way from home in the pursuit of their artistic dreams, trying in vain to find a major label home for their new album on far-flung shores. They aren't successful in that latter quest, although Born Sandy Devotional will in time get them signed, and go on to become one of the most revered Australian albums of all time. Not bad for an album that opens with a cinematic suicide and ends with a man desperate not to drink alone, hardly classic pop song territory. But the Triffids weren't your average band. Over the course of these five episodes, we're going to delve into Born Sandy Devotional with the help of a couple of band members, their manager, the album's engineer, a musician who became heavily embroiled in the sessions, and a couple of Aussie music figures to help give us a bit of context. One figure we sadly won't be speaking to, but one whose shadow looms large over all of these discussions, as well as Born Sandy Devotional itself, is the band's founding frontman and chief songwriter, David McComb, who tragically passed away in February 1999, just a couple of weeks shy of his 37th birthday. It was a massive loss for Australian music. He left us way too soon. But I hope that in the next few hours you'll get a sense of the man and his peculiar genius both through his own words and the words of his friends, bandmates, one of whom is also David's older brother Rob, and admirers. No foreign pair of dark sunglasses will ever shield you from The light that pierces your eyelids The scheming of her thoughts Before we get to Born Sandy Devotional, we need to get a feeling for the band and its history. The Triffids are intrinsically tied to Western Australia, not just through birth, but because their home state figures so heavily in both their mythology and in a lot of ways their art, although as we'll touch on later, not always in the way people assume. That said, not much of this story physically takes place in WA, although even here, again, it looms large over proceedings. David was born in Perth in February 1962, the youngest of four brothers. They had very successful parents. The father, Harold, was a plastic surgeon and his mother Athol, a renowned geneticist. He grew up in a sprawling but slightly ramshackle historical residence called The Cliff, which dates back to the late 19th century, one of the first residential dwellings built in the now affluent Perth suburb of Peppermint Grove. Music abounded at The Cliff, but the classy music favoured by his parents, and the rock and roll loved by his older brothers, but it was while he was studying at Christchurch Grammar School in Claremont that the punk explosion set the Triffids on course for adventure. Here's Rob McComb, David's older brother and soon-to-be fellow Trifford, remembering the role music played in their childhood. Well, for a start, our dad was very uh, keen uh, listener of not just classical music, but he was, you know, he was in the World Record Club and he, he, would buy, he was keen on jazz and light musicals and, and all that. Um, so we... We had a lot of his music around, but then our older brothers, um, Pete, the eldest, you know, he was a mad Rolling Stones fan in the 60s and uh, 
had the, the blue and white stripe stones shirt and uh and John the, the second oldest was he he was uh just an absolute Dylan nut you know he he would if you share the room that was sort of shared with John so he would he had a sort of a an inculcation of Dylan from the age of about two. <laughs> so there was all those sort of influences. Um, and I, you know, I had my own interests that were quite different from Dave. I'm four and a half years older than him. So, um, yeah, there's quite a variety of influences. But, but uh, and as far as playing music, though, um, that sort of wasn't so much in the family. I, uh, Pete learnt the violin and I did as well. But, you know, Dave, I think he might have had a guitar lesson at some stage or, or a piano lesson at some stage, but there wasn't a lot of uh, um, time spent learning instruments. It wasn't until, um, I guess, the era of, of punk when Dave just sort of decided, well, you know, let's, it can't be that hard kind of attitude. And, <laughs> and he and Alzi started, you know, making tapes on, on the weekends as 14-year-olds, really. Now, Elsie that Rob just mentioned is Alan Elsie McDonald, soon to be the Trippets drummer, but at this point just Dave's best mate from school, the pair thickest thieves. So in 1976, inspired by the DIY aspect of punk, and don't forget we're talking about Perth, the most remote capital of Australia, the remotest country on the planet in terms of physical isolation, in the pre-internet age that meant they were reading about punk in imported magazines long before they could actually hear it, and they started the forward-thinking multimedia project Dalsy, Dave and Elsie. This primitive venture used not just music but books and photographs and sculptures and poetry, and they were joined in their pursuits by guitarist Phil Kukoulis. After a couple of years of name changes in order, and after a very brief stint as block music and then Logic, they settled on the name The Triffords in May 1978, taking the name from John Wyndham's post-apocalyptic 1951 novel The Day of the Triffords. They'd already started churning out full cassettes of original music as Dalsy, so once they became the Triffords, they started pumping out small runs of independently released cassette albums, which they succinctly named Tape 1 and Tape 2, both from 1978, Tape 3 and Tape 4 from 1979, Tape 5 in 1980, and then Tape 6 in 1981. But in between tapes three and four, Kukulis leaves the band, so David asks his older brother Rob, already gigging on the Perth scene, to join the Triffords on a temporary basis. I was in a band, my first band was called Tiger Mountain Band, and, and we did quite a we did some originals of, of the couple of other guys in the band, but I joined as a violinist to begin with, and then the guitarist left, so I had to take over some of those duties. And... Uh, yeah, we're, we're a, an interesting band, but I could always see that Dave's, you know, the, uh, this is when I'm at university, Dave's still at school, and I could see what he was doing was, you know, every weekend they'd be making these cassette tapes of, you know, album-length recordings of, of really so inventive, you know, that the songs and so creative that I always uh, knew he had something really special. And... It was when Phil Kukulis sort of with some degree of drama left the band. You may have read Dave's account of uh, Phil ringing him up and saying, I'm with you. Um, 
Yeah, I think I offered my services. I said, oh, you know, I can uh, help out if you like. And, uh, yeah, so Dave, again, archived this, that Rob joins on a temporary basis. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, um, I guess I never got chucked out. Of <laughs> but uh, in the early days, I, I was um, more than just a musical uh, contributor. I sort of helped in a management capacity in a sense in those really early days being the older brother I'd be sort of be able to go to the bars and clubs and arrange gigs and um yeah so uh, but but it wasn't well a few years after that that we really needed to get a somebody outside the band to help help us with the management that was when we uh, really got Sally Collins who was uh ended up being our long-term manager and, and friend. Uh, we met her. She was managing the Sunny Boys when we first got to Sydney and um, she immediately took us under her wing, gave us a few supports and, and has been a great uh, supporter ever since. We'll meet Sally soon enough. In the meantime, the core of the Triffids is coming together. They moved through a couple of bass players and a couple of keyboard players as Dave is honing his songwriting and moving slowly but surely towards what would in time become the Triffids trademark sound. They're still in Perth, basically because Dave is enrolled at Western Australian Institute of Technology, studying journalism and literature, he wants his degree as a safety net, but the only real writing career he cherishes is writing songs, and to achieve those dreams he and the band need to get to the East Coast. I've interviewed a lot of great Perth musicians over the years, and much like the story we were telling about Brisbane under Joe in the Regurgitator Rewind, they all painted a picture of a city where live music meant cover bands back then. There was only a really limited scope for original music. Like Brisbane, there was always plenty of fine musicians in WA, but starting with Bon Scott and the Valentines in the 60s, through to names like The Victims, The Scientists, Hoodoo Gurus, obviously just the tip of the iceberg, you had to hit the East Coast to have a chance just because the music industry was centred in Sydney and Melbourne. So in late 82, the Triffids recorded their first four-track EP, Reverie, independently in Perth, a calling card of sorts, and then they started driving across the Nullarbor on a regular basis to stake a claim in the eastern capitals. I've driven around huge tracks of Australia, a lot of it with bands, but I've never done the Nullarbor, but I know from people telling me stories that it's long, flat, hot and boring. The Triffids didn't call their debut album Trailers Playing for Nothing. That is a genuine commitment, and they did it dozens of times. By this time, the Triffids have been joined by a young English-born bassist, Martin Casey, who after the Triffids would come to prominence bringing Nick Cave bottom end in the Bad Seeds and Grinderman, so it's all really coming together. 
Rob remembers those long trips across the Nullarbor as being a necessary evil while Dave was still anchored by uni. Yeah, it was sort of um, a bit of both, broadening horizons and and just getting out of Perth. I mean, I joined the band in, what, 80? We played, or 79. So it's been three years playing, and I spent, you know, three years, and that was, you know, they'd been playing before that. But when I joined was when the band really started playing in pubs and and that sort of thing. Um, so from pretty early on after becoming part of the Triffids, it was, it was uh, I think Dave was doing his uh, journalism course, writing course. Um, for those three years, I think it was always part of the plan that we were going to leave Perth. It was just a matter of... Um, the timing and yeah we uh, so yeah as soon as David finished that was when that summer we hopped in the, the van and drove across to Sydney which is where we knew some people to help with some accommodation and then as I say run into Sally and get some gigs and, and things took off but um, I remember chatting with Marty one time when we were rehearsing and I and I was joking, saying, wouldn't it be great if we recorded our first album overseas or something? So this is before we'd left Perth. So those ambitions were there from, you know, I'm sure Dave had them before I joined the band. You know, he was, he was, he decided that he was serious about this and was going to, well, for most of his time, I think really put, you know, his whole, uh, whole being into it and that, um, you know, I think he felt this connection with with these other artists, um, whether that you know the New York scene or or wherever it was, or which is probably where he felt most connection with, you know, bands like Television or or um, Patti Smith or those sort of writers. So I think from yeah, pretty much day one, he felt that. Uh, I certainly thought saw him of that quality uh, as a writer and an artist, and maybe it took him a while to, to see himself that way. But um, he was always very critical of other artists, but and but also influenced by the really good ones. So um, he certainly introduced me to a lot of fantastic music that I wouldn't have other wouldn't have otherwise known. Um, so he's, uh, I think his long-term vision was probably to be, you know, in, to be a, if you like, a, a player in that, in that cohort of, of artists. And, and I think, you know, when, when you, uh, you know, I think he got there, even though he may not have uh, realised all his ambitions, but for instance, when he, uh, he and Adam Peters did a, a, a um, Leonard Cohen song for a Leonard Cohen tribute album and and Leonard wrote him a letter saying how much he liked his version of the song and I know that sort of thing was really what you know that was a treasured item Dave had the letter from Leonard and and similarly when he he worked with other um you know not, not so much working with them but when he gained respect I guess from other artists in in the UK um, even if it was uh, I don't know, people that we would have been 
playing with, like uh, Ian McCulloch or Echo and the Bunnymen, that sort of thing. Or when it was actually Will Sargent from their band who would come alongside stage. And and when you get that, um, yeah, the peer peer recognition, uh, that that was I think important for Dave. Yeah. Uh, but then again, at the same time, we were fiercely, uh, you know, independent and, and didn't want to, you know, taking. Uh, leads of any other artists. Dave was uh, quite, you know, driven as is often of him, and had, you know had his own his own writing, you know, manifesto if you like to 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 put out there. So let's meet Sally Collins, who's soon to play a huge role in this story as the Triffitt's friend and manager. In the late seventies, though, she was only just starting out her career in Sydney, but she was already working along names like the great Lobby Lloyd the Brisbane-bred guitarist who'd played with the Purple Hearts, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, Colour Balls and even briefly Rose Tattoo, as well as a young Michael Chug in the delightfully named Scam. Absolutely. So city <laughs> artist management is good for. So, you know, and, um, yeah, I met Lobby um, in 1979, I suppose, and, and I was um, dating a guy who was sharing a house with him and uh, in Glebe, and they they were just starting working. I worked in this vegetarian restaurant in in Chatswood in Sydney, and that had live music and and going to lots of gigs and stuff. And anyway, Lobby was just starting work with Sardine. Um, do you know Sardine? Yeah, uh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and um, I was absolutely infatuated with them, and I put on a New Year's Eve show for the, the, with them. At um, a restaurant that we that, that I worked at, and they um, lobby said to me afterwards, you know, I, you know, you're a bit of a fucking smart ass. You know, we're starting a management company for um, for Sardine and a couple of other guys. Would you be interested? And I said, yeah, I would. And so um, I, I had a day job, which I quit the next day. And um, yeah, we started. We decided to call ourselves Scam. And we certainly did go by that name. So there was four of us with Chuggy as a, a silent partner. And that guy who lived with Lobby that Sally mentioned before, he was playing keys in a burgeoning band called Flowers, who was shortly after morph into Ice House following a name clash. And he'd bring back a memento from a tour to Perth, which would bring the Triffitts into Sally's orbit. And with Scam managing the Sunny Boys, that was soon moving in those illustrious circles as well. Yeah, so, yes, the Flowers toured to Perth and um, uh, when they came back, Anthony Smith, um, Anthony told me um, that he'd seen this band over there, this little band, they were just fantastic, and he'd bought a cassette and uh, you know, a famous cassette and listened to the cassette was terrific. Anyway, I didn't think much more about it at the time. But of course, then they came to Sydney. And, you know, so that that memory sparked my interest. And I went and saw their first gig in Sydney. And, uh, you know, I was just completely captivated. I think I went with Peter Oxley, who I was sharing a house with by that stage. Um, uh, and um, yeah, we were just like, oh, these guys are great. And uh, so we started giving them lots of support work with the Sunny Boys. And they moved into a warehouse, which was right behind our scam office. Um, 
a place called the Shepherd Newman Building and was in a bit of an art centre squat. It was a fantastic place, venue. And um, Rob McComb just used to come into the office selling me these cassettes all the time. I'd buy them and I, and I would give them to people so that, you know, to help spread the word about, about the Triffids. Yeah. And, in fact, it, um, Peter Oxley lent them his four-track recorder to, um, was it a four-track or an eight-track, to uh, record one of the dungeon tapes. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were fans. Fantastic. Did they go over well with the Sunny Boys crowd? Well, they went over very well with the Sunny Boys. <laughs> that was the <laughs> most important thing. But the... Um, <laughs> Yes, yes, they did. In fact, you know, we really only um, the inner city gigs were the ones that they did supports with. We didn't put them into the comb and cutter at Blacktown and places like that, which would have been, you know, trial by fire. But yeah, actually, Alzi would probably um, beg to differ. He thinks that we pro he probably thinks that we did put them into a lot of those. Um, Western suburbs venues where um, they probably didn't go down too well. But they were very good sports and they always had to, the Sunny Boys had this massive 12-ton truck PA and lights and things and two little Triffids would help load in and load out every, every day, every time they did a gig and they were very good sports about that too. But when Scam began to dissolve, Sally was suddenly at a loose end. Rob's been managing the Triffids in a de facto role and done a great job, from getting them their first ever gig supporting the scientists back in Perth, when he was the only member of Drinking Age actually allowed to be in the pub, through to all of the tours and early recordings, but they really needed someone not in the band to look after the business side of things. Sally not only had all of the industry connections, but was a Triffids fan and, perhaps most importantly, had earned the band's trust through her dealings with them as part of Scam. By this time, the band were about to sign a deal with local indie Hot Records to release their debut album, Treeless Playing, and they really needed her help. The stakes were high because they'd already been signed and dropped once at this early stage. Mushroom Records' alternative imprint, White Records, had signed them down in Melbourne, but dropped them after just the Spanish Blue single from late 82 and the Bad Timing and Other Stories EP from early 83. The Triffids had tried living in Melbourne, but just hadn't been able to grab a strong toehold there, despite working hard and living in squalor upstairs at the Prince of Wales Hotel in St Kilda. From reading Dave's journals, he seemed particularly scarred by one experience opening for Uncanny X-Men and Little Heroes at the Pier Hotel in Frankston. Literate Oz folk just didn't seem de rigueur there. There was a lot of synth bands, and they just didn't feel home, and that's when the Triffids decided to settle in Sydney. Here's Sally Collins recounting how she got dragged further into the saga. Um, well, Scam was sort of dissol dissolving. You know, the Sunny Boys were combusting. It was getting a bit too much for me. We, we also looked after um, Machinations and uh, there were other, other bands. But um, I, uh, I stopped working with the Sunnies and at the same time, Machinations had a sort of a little hit in, um, uh, well, significant in Australian terms in the States and they were charting on the R&B charts. And so I decided, well, I'd go to the States. They were on a mushroom affiliate called um, 
I can't remember what it's called now. Anyway, the, um, over there. And so I went over to try and set up a promotional tour for the band to go and, um, and do promotion. Anyway, that was just a disaster. Lobby moved to Melbourne. He was in, uh, you know, incommunicado. And I came back and I just thought, oh, well, bugger it. You know, I, you know I'm over it. And so I, um, that was sort of the end of Scam. One of our partners had sadly, very sadly died. Another of our um, partners who was a, an accountant slash non-accountant um, had mismanaged sort of finances and things. And, you know, I had just felt like, uh, you know, I was over it. You know, I've been carrying the sort of the happy face of Scam and tour managing these bands. So, yeah, so it sort of um, dissolved. And the next week when I came back from the, um, from the States and I went to um, a, a Triffids gig at the, um, at the Hope Town and um, all the Strawberry Hills. Anyway, Rob came up to me and he said, oh, Dave wants to talk to you. You know, this was late 1983. And uh, um, will you hang around after the gig? And I said, yeah, sure, I will. Anyway, I hadn't ever really talked to Dave, talked to Rob a lot because he was sort of like the manager of, um, of their affairs you know, in Sydney. And um, so I met Dave in the street afterwards and he said, look, I, I, wanted, uh, I want us to move forward like the band and um, we'd like to ask you to be our manager. And I went, sorry, no. You know, um, you know, I'd just come out of this other experience and after years and I said, I'm a bit burnt out. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll be your agent and I'll book your Australian tours for you and I'll, I'll, I'll give you advice. You know, if you, are, if you want advice or if you want to, you know, understand things about, you know, that you don't know, just come to me and I'll tell you. So um, he said, well, we're just about to go and do a deal with this company um, hot. And I said, okay, I don't know them at all. Um, you know, just anything you do want to know about the deal and the way it's done and what they're asking for, just ask me and I'll give you some advice. Anyway, so they went off and um, uh, to hot, I became their agent. And uh, subsequently I was invited to the hot office to meet um, Martin Jennings and Chris Reed and Graham Regan, the, the partners of, of Hot Records, and um, with the band, because they, um, they, they were unsure. So I said, yeah, okay, well, I'll come along with you. And so it, it, you know, I went along you know, and um, met them, and Martin Jennings, who's a, a very charismatic guy and fabulous A&R man, he said, um, would I be interested in setting up an agency for hot artists? So I said, yeah, sure, because they had great, you know, they had Ed and, and the, the Clowns and, and Celebrate Rivals and Gondwana Land and all these things. I'm thinking, great, you know, this will be, you know, I toured all around the country sort of with bands for the last four years and knew lots of venues and so I got my agent's licence and I became hot booking and um, and booked the Triffids tours and uh, the, the last Clowns tour, the first Ed Cooper tour and um, other artists, the Benders and stuff. Yeah, 
So that's how I started. That's, that's how it started. Yeah. So for now, Sally's passed on managing the Triffids. Instead, booking them shows as hot booking, along with the rest of the hot roster. By now, the Triffids have become a five-piece again, with the addition of Jill Burt on keyboards, a novice player brought in by Dave McComb because she fit his vision for the band rather than any technical abilities. It was this version of the Triffids who would record their debut album, Treeless Plane, in a series of midnight to dawn sessions between August and September 1983 at Sydney's Emerald City Studios, the nighttime rates being significantly cheaper. With the band producing the album, but drawing heavily on the studio experience of young in-house engineer Nick Mainsbridge, another Perth expat who'd headed east to the bright lights to forge a career in music. Nick knew Matthew Delahunty from Tall Tales and True, who, as luck would have it, had been in a band called The Nobodies back in Perth, whose bassist was Martin Casey. There were a, a certain type of Oz rock band that used to turn up in the studio I worked in. And um, the Triffids was something entirely different and much more in the ballpark of what I was interested in at that time. So, um, yeah, that's about it, right? I mean, I, I just, I thought they were interesting. I knew that they weren't the same as the other bands that were coming in and I couldn't put my finger on what it was, but I really liked them, yeah. Nick does recall being intrigued by both Dave's charisma and his musical ability. Well, he was incredibly well-read, and um, so much so that it, we would be setting up the studio and he'd always be there with a book until, you know, something was coming out of the speakers. If, if he wasn't um, inventing something, he was reading something. And um, I, I think he... Um, he probably had 10 things going on at the same time, you know? It wasn't just music. But uh, look, he was an incredible man and uh, it's very sad that he's not with us anymore. To keep up with him, it was uh, a big ask. Uh, he was very critical of his own vocals and um, uh, particularly in the early days, you know, we would make sure we'd been through every possible combination of mixing vocal takes together before we would decide on the ultimate one. And there were, you know, to, to keep up with him, it meant that you had to really remember what was on each track, you know. We didn't have automatic faders or mute buttons then. And everyone in when we were mixing would be on a couple of faders with marks on the console and everyone would be aware of their part. But for me, it was like, you know, it was difficult to keep up. You basically had to have a memory of the entire song um, accessible at any time, not just what is on what track, but like what um, part of the syllable Dave wants me to cross the vocal tracks over to, you know. Um, so, yeah, we were, it got pretty pedantic at times. And it's amazing that uh, with Treeless Plane, we finished it at all. I mean, finished it so quickly. So the Triffitt's debut album comes out on Hot and gets a great reception. Hot doesn't release any singles, but the album has a few crackers like Red Pony. Red Pony It's a gift from me From me to you From me to you 
My baby thinks she's a train. And hell of a summer. Then in February 1984, just a few months after the album's release, they dropped a standalone single, Beautiful Waste. one point there, Treeless Plane is number one on the independent album chart and Beautiful Waste is number one on the independent singles chart. Sally remembers that at this point things were going great with Hot too. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely was. You know, the, um, yeah, you know, the Triffords paid for all their own things. There was no money exchanging hands, but, in, you know, but they were getting distribution and um, press, you know, PP and D deal press promotion and um, distribution. And, um, yeah, it was good. Around this time, the formation of what we'll call the classic Triffords lineup, the six-piece who would soon make Born Sandy devotional, crystallised with the addition of young pedal steel player Graham Lee. The Queensland-bred Lee had been roped in to work on the Lawson Square Infirmary project, 
a one-off collaboration between the Triffords, minus Jill, and James Patterson of JFK and the Cuban Crisis, another Brisbane boy headed south to the Big Smoke, and in Lee, Dave obviously saw or heard something indefinable that finished the Triffords puzzle he'd been working on in his head. I met them first in 84. Um, it's just through a mutual friend, James Patterson, I think it was, um, who took me, said, told me, you've got to get to see this band called the Triffords. And I went along to a gig and went backstage and met them and uh, didn't really think much more of it until uh, the, that Lawson Square project, you know, the Lawson Square Infirmary EP that was um, a bunch of Trifford songs done by uh, the Triffords with the, the, the guy I was mentioning before, James Patterson, and I played, uh, I played uh, Dobro on that, on that thing which was recorded in the early hours of the morning at the Opera House because um, Dave knew somebody who worked as an engineer at the Opera House. We snuck in and, and uh, recorded something. And that's the first, uh, the first thing that I ever did with the Triffids. Uh, and then I, they went to the UK. I kind of forgot about it all and tried to get on with my life. And uh, then in 85, I, was, I got a call from Dave asking me to play some shows in Australia. Um, and I said to Dave, what do you want me to play? And he said, pedal steel. And I said, are you sure? Because um, like I've only been playing for six months. I really can't play that thing. And he said, yeah, that's why I asked you. Again, Lee's addition to the Triffords lineup seems a case of Dave McComb following his intuition more than anything else. I, d- I don't think he really knew exactly what he wanted but but he had pretty good instincts um you know dave on the surface of of it some of dave's decisions regarding personnel were probably a little bit um silly but he had good instincts i think and um you know like jill was not a a um proficient um keyboard player at all when she joined, and she said the same thing to Dave, like, you're mad. Why are you asking me? <laughs> but he obviously, you know, because I think, like, Born Sandy itself um, is kind of the proof of his, that his instincts were right, because while um, neither Jill nor I at that stage were, were even vaguely proficient on our instruments we had the right attitude and and we could therefore sort of use the the instruments that we had um to to serve the song rather than you know throw our egos out there what was it like joining an established band i mean your pedal steel boots to the palette but was it easy or it was kind of great. It was a gradual process, really. I mean, I, I found it a little bit nerve wracking to begin with because we, I, the first thing I did was live shows on the East Coast. Um, so I had to, had to learn a lot of stuff. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever played with a bunch of people who were so, I don't know, sort of dedicated to the 
to the musical side of things. And certainly the first time I'd ever been in, in contact with somebody such as, as Dave McComb, um, such a, an amazing writer, you know, intense personality. Um, I, look, I've, I don't recall being overawed by it, but I do recall kind of uh, an, an intense process of learning because um, I, I was learning the instrument as well. I like you know it's a very complicated instrument to play and and I was really learning my instrument as I went um, um, and I never re in in the first so the first uh, six or seven years that I played pedal steel I never had a chance to practice <laughs> except on stage or in the studio or in a rehearsal studio you know it was like. It was kind of crazy, but it worked. It was also around this time that Dave McComb bestowed upon his new bandmate the moniker that would adorn the Triffids liner notes and follow him round for years to come, Evil Graham Lee. He discovered that pedal steel players mostly have nicknames and he figured he was getting shortchanged. And we were, we were watching, sitting on a, a sofa together watching Evil Roy Slade, the movie, and he said, I've got it. You're evil. It seems kind of strange that Dave McComb introduced two members into his band, which, remember, was going pretty well, neither of whom were really yet proficient at their instruments and who were more or less learning on the job. His brother Rob remembers that these decisions were often just as much about the personal dynamic as they were the musical one. I wouldn't say we're strictly a family band, but we definitely want to... Uh, enjoy the people we work with uh, over the years. It's been important, you know. Um, I think Dave forming the band, you know. Okay, I was the older brother, but but it wasn't so much the the uh, the musical skills, but the whole attitude that you brought and, and the you know the yeah the attitude to collaborations and, and that sort of thing that that were valued. So and personality is one of those. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've ever met. Alzi, the drummer, he's such a wonderful person that he left the band really early on for a little while. And I know at that stage, Dave was thinking, we got a temporary drummer in. And I remember Dave sort of really doubting whether he could go on, you know, with this sort of mercenary approach rather than a, a, a really uh, sort of a group uh, quest, if you like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when he rejoined it, it was a really uh, gave the band another lease of life, if you like. He didn't want to do cliches, did he, or things that have been done? No, and that, that was so true, not just lyrically but musically. And uh, I can think of a couple of interviews with Graham Lee when he says that, that exactly. He says if, if you came out with, especially with his, you know, chosen instrument, the pedal steel, if he came out with a, any cliché, you know, country-style thing that, that, that was stereotypical of the instrument... David began, you know, well, he would make it quite clear, no, what we need to do is, is something, you know, if you've got an idea, it's fantastic, go with that, rather than just rehash something that you've already heard. Um, so, yeah, cliches were not, not what he dealt in at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, um, 
like anything you say about Dave, it, it, there's, there's some paradoxical elements because he loved some traditional country music, which is which uses cliche, you know, directly, <laughs> and and pop music does a lot as well. So, uh, yeah, he, he was just very wary of it. But if you could use it in a creative way, then it, you know, anything was up, anything was uh, possible. He, he wasn't uh, he wasn't too too conservative in his in his way of thinking about music and songwriting. So, although we avoided cliches, uh, it, you know, they it, often they're seen as reference points too to other music. You know, so. Uh, it just depends on your perspective. Is, is it a cliche or a reference point? Um, what was that saying to you know to 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 steal is divine or something? To borrow is is something, but to steal is divine. And and he yeah he would uh, in it's certainly in production notes for recording, um, and some of this is on on our website where he made all these notebooks and there'd be specific references to a specific song by. A certain artist. I want, you know, this drum beat. I want that guitar sound. I want, you know, this this particular atmosphere. Um, whether that's borrowing cliches or, or I don't think so. It's more uh, just what all artists do. They find good stuff and they use it to create something new. Sally Collins, who'd been watching the final version of the Trivets come together from close range believes that the big change in the band dynamic came when Martin Casey joined the ranks just prior to recording the Bad Timing and Other Stories EP. Well, I think the the evolution really kicked off when Marty joined the band. You know, so Marty, I would say, is one of the world's best bass players. I just think he's just an extraordinary musician. And um, so when Marty joined the band... And, and Jill joined at the same time. So when I first started seeing them, when they first came over with other bass players and keyboard players um, before and before Graham, they, they were great, but they were a little pop band. When Marty joined the band, then they became, they're, they're a world of possibility, you know, opened up. They, they had some guts, you know, under, you know, a, a, driving, a driving force. And so Dave's writing sort of started to, in my mind, you know, they might say something different, but in my mind Dave's writing started to evolve into more of that dramatic thing, which, you know, initially you would get a taste of it a hell of a summer or the cover of Lonesome Hobo and stuff. But, you know, we had Stolen Property, we had Lonely Stretch, we had, you know, sort of these fantastic dramatic things with these thumping driving bass sounds. So that's, to me, that's when they really started to mature when when Marty joined. When, um, and the combination of Jill, who joined at the same time as Marty, and the same two of the first tour they I booked the first tour with those two guys you know it was great and uh um Australian tour that was and and Jill she she just 
made these big sounds with her, you know, like, you know, I know that she says, that, you know, that Dave said, you know, be like the doors, you know, because she didn't, she was a guitarist, you know, she didn't, didn't consider herself, a, he's saying, think of the doors or think of the Velvet Underground or whatever. And she made these big spaces and would whack that, that Hammond and play these very open big chords. And so that then, you know, those two things sat really well within the, the new writing, the new songs. So when Graham joined, and coincidentally, I had met Graham before he joined the band because he was playing from time to time um, with a country um, band called the Flying Emus. And I, um, and I had seen them, they were involved, they were very good, played bluegrassy stuff and Sydney band. And um, I'd seen them in Tamworth a few times. And anyway, so, so Graham, when Graham joined, it was just great, you know, because Graham added that, you know, that third level of atmosphere, you know, and, and like Marty, you know, Graham is just a great musician. And uh, so Graham just, you know, he can just hit a single note and change the whole, on the pedal steel and change the whole atmosphere of the room or of the song, which is sort of, you know, um, what happens. So yeah, they really became like, you know, a, a perfect storm with, with all, all of them. It was, it was fun for all of them, you know, at that, at that stage, but especially Dave, I imagine, because he's, um, his visions were, you know, um, becoming reality. Graham's not a permanent member yet, but the Triffids who will make Born Sandy devotional have coalesced in Dave McCollum's vision. Things are going more than fine in Australia, but Dave's ambitions reach further than this. The pub rock boom is taking over the country, and it's a movement that relies upon raw power and pummeling the senses more than it does well-crafted lyrics and nuance. He and Elsie have already been in the Triffids for six or seven years by this point and he was artistically ambitious and felt he was ready. So as Rob explains, the Triffids packed their bags and headed to England, giving themselves three months to make themselves known so they could sign to a major label and make the masterpiece they all knew was brewing within them. You know, we came across from Perth, went to Sydney, stayed there for six months, went down to Melbourne, signed with the White Label, then... Went back to Perth and then back to Sydney and Melbourne and then White Label dropped us and then, you know, so and then we made our own record, Beautiful Waste, after the Bad Timing EP, which had been in White. So we're, we're saving our money and we're spending it just as quickly on, on the recording and on living. And so, um, yeah, we were growing, I guess, in popularity, but it um, wasn't, yeah, it wasn't that... Uh, it wasn't enough really to, I mean, to, I guess you could survive on it, but, but that wasn't really what we were about. It wasn't just survival. Um, we wanted to make great records and, you know, do great shows. And yeah, I, I'm not sure what, a bit like leaving Perth, leaving Australia just seemed inevitable, you know, even though, I'm not sure if you were suggesting why don't we just stay in Sydney and Melbourne oh, and, no, no. and and enjoy being a you know <laughs> finally 
after six years, finally having some recognition because, of course, you know, bands like us had very little recognition in the early days and, and you'd be putting out records independently and all of the here, the pub bands, you know, that were, were so much more popular. Um, going, so going to Europe, yeah, it was something that we'd planned pretty much probably since we were had left Perth and we we're going to Sydney and Melbourne and back and driving back and forth. And um, I remember we, and, and then we had other colleagues, if you like, the go-betweens who we'd met who were over there, the Moodists who we'd become friends with, they had moved over. Um, but it wasn't as if we were following. I think it was something we'd always planned to do too. They'd just got there a bit earlier than us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, we, luckily enough, when we, Got over there. Um, we well, go betweens kindly gave us a support gig, and that one gig just sort of showed to other agents that eventually booked us and other people that yeah, we're we're a good band and we're worth um, investigating. So once we got an agent to book us shows, and we did some uh, got some gigs with Echoburn, which were really big, they were really popular at that stage. And and those supports went really well. Um, you know, there was something about their crowd and that that liked us. So it got off to a good start that way. And uh, then I guess we, <laughs> after a few months, we went back to Australia. We, we always seem to be doing the wrong thing as far as, you know, making a very efficient path to, to <laughs> popularity would go. Um, but, I, yeah, we got a good review in the NME and then that meant just on the strength of that first tour just into the UK, it was in 1985 where we went back and by that stage, yes, Born Sandy had been in the planning stages for a year or two and the idea was we were going to go and get a major deal and record Born Sandy would be our first major record and, you know, pretty confident. On that first trip to the UK in 1984, the Triffids killed it. They were lean and confident and experiencing an overseas adventure together. But importantly, they were A, getting a bit of luck with their connections over there and B, playing like a band possessed. The band were really lucky because they, in 84, I think they did a did a support with the go-betweens and they also um largely through through connections um such as um mick houghton was our publicist and he put us in touch with a lot of people um but uh, so the go-betweens tour got got attention for the band in 84 and then they had an, a tour with echo and the bunnymen um which really got a lot of a lot more attention. I think that's what led to the enemy cover. Okay. Um, so, you know, just um, hard work brings good luck, I guess. Awesome. And and the band was a really, really solid live band that, um, and most English bands at the time weren't. I've heard some of the, uh, there were some recordings of, the support um, gigs with with Echo and the Bunnymen, and there, that was in front of huge crowds, uh, like at 
Barrowlands in Glasgow and places like that. And uh, you can sort of hear, if you listen to to one of these support gigs, you can hear that the crowd doesn't give a shit to begin with, but then they kind of start to think, wow, these guys are actually pretty good. Um, and there's a there's another gig, a gig that we actually put out on uh, on our 10 CD um, set of rarities. Um, there's a gig at the London School of Economics, um, this which was around that time. And in with this gig, you can actually hear it happen. You can hear it. Uh, the there is very sparse appreciation at the beginning of the set, but it builds up to to a point where everybody's where they you know get it um, have to do an encore and um, yeah it was a, I think um, audiences fairly quickly uh, you know the, there was the strength of the band but also Dave up there like some mad preacher and uh, you know I think. Um, you know, he he knew how to, he knew what he was doing, and uh, he'd very quickly gone from a from a shy kind of a shy teenager to a a twenty three year old powerhouse. It's incredible to believe he was so young still at the time when you yeah, born Sandy, he was twenty three. It's incredible. It is incredible, um, but lots of people. Um, did things pretty young. Um, you know, if you've like the Stones and the Beatles, yeah, were very young, um, and they were hit their peak. Like, I guess you know, Dave had been really working on on his songwriting and and every aspect of of his music. Um, with a very very serious bent, he wasn't he wasn't playing games. Um, he was. And that's one of the things that that impressed me when I first started working with the band. That um, that he he and the band were so serious about it. I'd never actually, you know, I played music for fun, and while this was still fun, um, it was much more serious than anything that I'd ever come in contact with. The NME cover that Graham mentioned there in passing was massive for an Australian band in London, a huge deal. The Triffids had cut through and started to be fated in a way that their peers over there, like the Birthday Party and the Go-Betweens, had yet to be able to achieve. The cover was on the first NME issue of 1985 and it was brazenly adorned with the headline 1985, The Year of the Triffids. By the time that NME cover landed, the Triffids were already back in Australia for Christmas and a big summer tour, but with all that traction it would have been lunacy not to go back to the UK. So in mid-1985, they repacked their bags and returned to England, this time as a six-piece with Graham in their midst, not yet, but soon to be a permanent member, and with Sally Collins, not yet, but soon to be their manager, over there helping them out on the ground. David told me of his plan, and this was all part of his plan was that they were would go going to go to the UK and um, 
you know, so oh, and I booked them a very big tour to save up the money for the tickets <laughs> and so they could get there. And so, yeah, off they went and it, it went really, really well. And as you would know, and um, when they came back, the, the return tour, I was always booking farewell tours, return tour. Farewell. And the um, when they came back, uh, they came and saw me again and then they said, will you come with us next year? We need you over there. And I, yeah, I said, sure. And um, so I went with them. Um, well, I went in advance of them in 1985. And uh, um, yeah, so that was the start of, I still wasn't the manager then. Um, at that stage, you know, Martin, who was having grand ideas about all sorts of things, you said, well, we'll be hot management. We'll be hot, hot management. Well, the Triffids didn't want hot management. They actually wanted me. They wanted personal management. And, um, I, but, you know, I went along with it. You know, it was all new to me to work in the UK and in Europe. And um, Martin being, uh, Jennings being English, you know, and being a former A&R guy over there, you had a lot of really great contacts. And so... You know, he and I um, set forth into record companies um, all over town and, and through Martin's connection, what greatly benefited the Triffords was one, Mick Houghton, the publicist. Martin had worked with WEA in a former life and, um, and uh, um, Bill Drummond, um, who... Um, through Bill and and Mick came the connection for Gil Norton, you know, through Echo and the Bunnymen and one thing or another. And, um, yeah, and I, I, I found an agency and got them with an agency. And um, the other great thing was rough trade. So Martin had a great um, uh, relationship with um, Peter Wormsley, who ran the distribution arm of rough trade um, Europe. So that was great. So the, you know, the earlier records on HOT were all being distributed through Rough Trade into Europe and, um, and yeah, and then we did little licensing deals in Benelux and Sweden and so other smaller deals were put together for more intense you know, um, representation in those countries, which was great. So things were coming together nicely for the Triffids in the UK, all except that elusive major label deal. There were indeed numerous major labels sniffing around, only as Sally Collins explains, the team at HOT didn't want just the Triffids to get signed, they wanted the whole HOT roster to be signed. And, rightly or wrongly, those labels were only interested in the Triffids. Stalemate. It was a really difficult situation and it became apparent to all of us what Martin Jennings was going for and, with, and I was going into these meetings with him. There were, there were record companies interested in the Triffids, um, definitely. So, um, uh, and, but I was going in with Martin to have these meetings with different companies and he wanted an umbrella deal for HOT. So he wanted... He was talking this big game about, you know, you get the Triffids, but you also get Ed and you get the rifles and you get, and we've got this and we've got, so he wanted a hot, an umbrella arrangement for hot records. And it, it, it became 
obvious to me that he was the only person that wanted that. <laughs> you know, the uh, you know um, the record companies that we were seeing were not interested in that, and were not interested in funding that. But um, anyway, so um, what we did get though was a publishing deal with Warner Brothers Music for the songs, and there was an advance on that, which was about twelve thousand pounds, I think, which went towards a percentage towards um, Born Sandy. But the um, so no deals were coming. The band was getting understandably frustrated, and you know, and as was I. And I could see quite clearly what the issues were and my issues. And um, we were all broke, except for Martin. He was not broke. But we were, you know, had no money whatsoever. And, and we were, we'd planned the recording and we'd planned this tour. And um, so, you know, I just said to the band, we've got to do it, you know, we've got to you know, you've been an independent band, you've got this great body of songs, you know, let's just do it. You know, shopping these demos, everybody liked the demos. But um, so, you know, we made the decision to just to do the recording ourselves, which, you know, um, as I've said before in other interviews, you know, that my feeling was that we would make the record to keep moving forward rather than just sitting there eating baked beans and the uh, and use the finished record to shop a deal for the Triffords on their own for the next record. And um, so that's what we did. Yeah. Cobbled the music, uh, the, the money together and the... Um, you know, in the words of Martin Jennings, you know, the uh, the arrangements and the deals written on the back of a cigarette packet. And um, so, it, yeah. Anyway, so but it, but the recording was done. So we'll end episode one there. Musically, things are going swimmingly, but behind the scenes, the Triffids ducks just aren't quite lining up. NME has declared 1985 to be the year of the Triffids, but so far no one else is buying in. We'll end with the band over there in London with no international record deal, an Australian deal that's not really doing them any favours and having just come to the realisation that they're pretty much on their own for album number two, what will become Born Sandy Devotional. In the meantime though, the Triffids had still been recording away. Before they'd headed to London in 84, they'd recorded the seven-track Raining Pleasure EP, which, like Treeless Plain, had come out in the UK via Hot's rough trade deal and helped spark the buzz on the Triffids in Europe. We'll sign off episode one with Raining Pleasure's closing title track, delivered by Jill Burt, who as we'll find out Dave regularly turned to as a way to place his songs in a different context. Dreamless or it all come down Dreamless or my pleasure
Thanks so much for listening to episode one of Rewind's five-part look back at the Triffids-born Sandy devotional. The story really gets going from here, so please dive in again for episode two. Catch you then. Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Treweek and Andrew Mutt. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.